see it again. <laughs> so Steve asked me to uh, pick out one of my favorite moments from a Big Ten basketball game and uh, show a clip this morning. And I'm a University of Michigan fan, so I cheated. <laughs> I couldn't pass up the chance to celebrate one last time, especially this week, uh, since Jim Harbaugh, uh, our coach of the last nine years, decided to go coach in the NFL, which honestly, I'm okay with that. Um, he did a lot for Michigan. He finished what he started, and the guy that he left behind that Michigan hired to replace him, I like better. So win-win, right? Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the other reason uh, I went with this, that I went with the national championship game uh, instead, is that I'm actually not that much uh, of a college sports fan. Um, I, I, I back Michigan because my, my dad did his master's degree at University of Michigan, and so I come by it honestly. Uh, but I also lived in Lansing for seven and a half years where uh, Michigan State University is located, and I have no problem cheering for them also as long as they're not playing Michigan. Uh, and so that tells you right there that I, I can't be a true college sports fan uh, because that's a rivalry, and I'm not supposed to be allowed to cheer for a rival. Um, and so I'm just, I'm an enigma that way. Uh, it happens, I suppose. Uh, when I first uh, moved to Decatur 17 years ago, uh, someone uh, in this church asked me which college I supported. Uh, and when I told them Michigan, they said, oh, well, that's not going to work then. <laughs> I'm like, like what? Like my job? <laughs> like I, and they're like, oh, because of the rivalry. And I said, oh, so are you an Ohio State fan or are you a Michigan State fan? And they're like, well, no. I'm an Illinois fan. And I was really confused, but I guess everyone just sees themselves as Michigan's rivals these days. Just anybody can be a rival for, for Michigan. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what I said to them, because then you'll just boo me off the stage and you won't listen to me the rest of the, the, rest of the time this morning. I, I do follow college sports, but I am, I'm a professional sports fan at heart. Uh, I grew up 10 minutes outside of the city of Detroit. And Detroit has four professional sports teams, uh, one for each of the major sports in this country. Uh, I have attended uh, live games for all four of those teams, lots of Lions games, tons of Pistons games. Uh, growing up, in the, the church I grew up in, uh, someone who worked for the arena uh, that the Pistons played in uh, was a member of our church, and he would show up anytime there was a Sunday game, he would have tickets, and he would show up, uh, he would come down to like the youth group room and ask if any of the teenagers could, uh, wanted to go to the game that day. And so I got free tickets to Pistons games all the time. Uh, so I, I went to a lot of Pistons games. Um, I've been to Red Wings games, quite a few actually. I, I was a, a big hockey fan before I moved to uh, no hockey world, and, uh, and so like lots of Red Wings games, some Tigers games, I'm not a big baseball fan, live baseball is okay, uh, but I've been to some Tigers games as well, and, uh, and so there's four professional sports teams in Detroit, and, and here's the thing, they're never all good at the same time, like historically it's never happened ever, not once, right, we've never had a year when all four teams were good, so like this year for example, the Lions are good, like, legitimately, I can say that, right? They're playing in the NFC Championship game tonight. The Detroit Lions are good. The Red Wings are okay. They're, they're like, working on trying to get in as a wild card team. And the Pistons and Tigers are terrible. Just really, really bad. Um, and that's always been the case in Detroit. Like, we can't have nice things. We just never get all four teams doing well all at the same time, all in the same year. And I, I don't know if that's, maybe that's God's providence, that if all four Detroit teams did well in the same year, we just burn the city to the ground. And so maybe God's protecting the city of Detroit. I don't know. But, but 
it's the, this is kind of the same idea behind this uh, Big Ten series that we're about to start today. That's why we're surrounded with uh, the Big Ten paraphernalia, the video, uh, and all that stuff. I, I did notice that there's an awful lot of Michigan State stuff back there. The only, the only Michigan thing is a child-sized t-shirt. Whatever. So uh, this is the, the idea behind this series, right, that the, the Big Ten, uh, that we're looking at, just like Detroit has four professional teams, the Bible has four Gospels, and those four Gospels uh, are, are all pretty different from one another, honestly. Like, sometimes we think that if I've read one, I've read them all, but it's not really true. The, the authors of each of the Gospels wrote to different audiences, kind of for a different reason, to get at some different points they were trying to make. And so they didn't all include the same stories. In fact, uh, there's really only 10 major stories that all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include in their Gospels. And that's why we're calling this series the Big Ten. We're going to look at those 10 stories that all four Gospels include uh, and just kind of ask, what is it about these stories that, that make them so big that all four authors said, this has to be part of the story I'm telling uh, about Jesus and about the Messiah. And so um, the first of those stories, the first in order, uh, is the story about Jesus coming to John the Baptist uh, and, and getting baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, we're going to read that story from Matthew chapter 3, uh, but it's also found in Luke chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, and John chapter 1. Uh, and so that's where it's found in all four of the Gospels. We're going to read uh, the whole thing uh, from Matthew chapter 3 together this morning. It'll be on the screens. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And all God's people said, ew. <laughs> people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Uh, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one, com uh, one after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So John the Baptist plays 
an important role in all four Gospels. This story is in all four Gospels. All of them include this quote from Isaiah chapter 40 uh, to show that John fulfills the Old Testament prophecy of a voice calling from the wilderness. That's who he is. That's, that's what he does. Um, John the Baptist, this is going to get confusing because there's a John who wrote the Gospel and a John who is the Baptist and they're not the same John. So John the Baptist is a bridge that connects what God was doing in the Old Testament to what God is about to do in the New Testament. Mark's gospel, in fact, starts with John the Baptist right off the bat. This story is Mark you know, 1-1 um, in order to show that God is picking up right where he left off. That's, Mark's really interested in like moving things along. Uh, and so Mark is like, right away, this story, God's back at it. He's, he's active again. Um, And this story isn't about John the Baptist. He makes that clear in all four Gospels when he describes the one coming after him as more powerful. When he says, uh, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. I'm not worthy to even serve him the way that that, that a slave would by by taking off his shoes and and carrying them. Um, Matthew and Mark uh, include details about uh, his, his diet and his clothing, uh, that his clothes were made of camel's hair, his food was locusts and wild honey, uh, camel hair coats were really thick. Uh, they were so thick, they were, they were almost waterproof, actually. Uh, they were also kind of the mark of someone who was poorer in, in Israel. Uh, they, they didn't have uh, the wealth to, to invest in, the, uh, in, in a higher quality of clothing. And so a camel's hair, hair coat was, uh, you know, the poorer, the lower class people wore those. Uh, and then the, the, the locusts and wild honey, uh, that wouldn't be a totally unusual diet for someone who lived where John lived, out in the desert. That was uh, honestly fairly typical. Um, but his clothes and his diet do cause him to kind of stand out uh, as someone who has rejected the luxuries of life. He's not super interested. Nobody can really accuse John the Baptist of being like materialistic. He's not very consumer driven, right? Um, camel hair coat, give me some locusts, wash it down with honey, I'm good, right? And, and so uh, his whole lifestyle kind of embodies the message that he's preaching. Just like a lot of the Old Testament prophets, he just lives out the message that God is sending him to proclaim. And, and his lifestyle also sets up these, these comparisons, some pretty clear symbolism that will compare him with the prophet Elijah. Um, it, would, it would kind of be like someone showing up in central Illinois today wearing like a stovepipe hat and a big old beard. They're not Abraham Lincoln, like they, you aren't him, but like you're obviously trying to look like him, right? Like for some reason. And that's kind of what's going on here, right? He's not Elijah, he says that uh, in John's gospel, but he is functioning like Elijah did in the Old Testament. Um, So it's no big surprise that he drew a crowd, you know, like Abraham Lincoln guy would draw a crowd. No big surprise he drew a crowd. The certified prophet has appeared. People want to go see this guy. What is it that he has to say? Is it authentic? Is it real? Is it like the old days? Remember, God has really not spoken this way for hundreds of years. And so people are excited that, like, God is finally speaking to us again through prophets just like the old days. Like I said, John's gospel tells the story a little bit differently. Um, John's gospel is told uh, by John the Baptist. It's kind of like an interview. Like he's giving testimony uh, about what he saw and and what happened. Um, And so when he's questioned about his identity, uh, he denies that he's the Messiah. That's the first one. And then he's asked if he's Elijah come back to life. Um, Which to our ears sounds kind of ridiculous, but there is a prophecy in Malachi 4 Uh, verse 5, that taught that the prophet Elijah would return 
before the Messiah in order to, to announce that the Messiah has come. And because God took Elijah from the earth without dying, that's a crazy story, you should read that sometime. God took Elijah from the earth without dying. People thought that mysteriously somehow he was still alive somewhere and, and God would send him back. And so they're like, maybe this is him. Maybe this is Elijah. Again, that's pretty exciting. Let's check that out. And John says, that, I'm not Elijah. That's, I, that's not my identity. That's not who I am. Uh, and then he also denies being the prophet that Moses promised back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where, where Moses said, uh, there, you know, God will raise up a prophet like me. Uh, and that was another sign, right? Another thing that was ascribed to the Messiah. And so John's like, I'm not him. He, he, you know, that's, that's not my deal. And they're like, well, who are you then? You know, what, what is your deal? And he says, I'm a voice. You know, that in, 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 the other, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, uh, John the Baptist is, that's the, the quote that's given. It's kind of like the narrator gives the quote from Isaiah 40. In John's gospel, John quotes it about himself. He says, I'm the voice calling uh, for people to prepare for the coming Messiah. That's, that's all I am. That's my whole deal. I'm just a voice to get people ready for uh, the, the one who's coming, the one who's more important than me. You know, I'm just the, the pre-show. Uh, the main event is yet to come. And, and the, the, so the big questions that are found uh, in, in all four Gospels, because as interesting as John the Baptist is, he's not even the point in this story. Like, we're really drawn to, like, who is this dude? And, like, John, would, John the Baptist would be horrified if we focused this whole message on him. Um, the point is that he's pointing to someone else, right? And so the questions that this story should make us ask in all four Gospels are, who is the Messiah? Who is it that John's pointing to? And how do we get ready for him to come? Because that's John's deal. I'm here to point you to the one who's coming after me and tell you what to do to be prepared, right? And so that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. Uh, John handles the second question first, uh, how to be prepared. Uh, And his message is really clear. Uh, in, In Matthew, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Which ought to sound familiar to us uh, because that's the same message that Jesus announces one chapter later in Matthew chapter four when he sets out on his ministry that's exactly the same thing he says. It's exactly the same thing that Jesus sends the 12 out on their missionary journey in Matthew chapter 10 to say. So John's whole ministry is this call to repentance that will be picked up and repeated by Jesus, that he, Jesus will send out his, his disciples uh, to, to, to repeat this message. Really, this is the heart of what the gospel is. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so John's whole ministry is this. It's a call to repentance. It's designed to get people ready for the arrival of God's salvation by having their hearts opened to the Messiah who's, who's coming. And, and over the years, uh, the church has defined this word repentance in terms of uh, turning all the way around and moving in a different direction than the one you were going. Uh, so turning away from sin and towards God. So repentance isn't just, it's it, you know, admitting I was wrong, but it's also changing, right? It's, you know, you've heard the, you know, the 180 degree turn. I once heard a, a preacher mess up his numbers and say a 360 degree turn. You're just going in the same direction. Okay, 180 degree turn and then the other direction, right? You're going the other way and making a change. Um, When you repent, you do that. You stop what you're doing, you turn around, you start doing something else. Um, And here's the thing, I'm not sure that, that that concept of repentance gives us the full meaning of what 
John here and Jesus later on is calling us to do. Not that that's wrong. That, I mean, certainly that's right, but I'm not sure that gives us a full picture. And I, I don't always do this, but, but just for the sake of the full picture, I want to walk through a word, this, this word study a little bit in the Greek. The Greek word that our Bible translates as repentance is metanoia. And like a lot of Greek words, it's formed by combining two words together. A lot of Greek words are just mashing words together. Um, the first word is meta, uh, which means beyond, and nous, which has to do with the mind. And so literally, the meaning of this word is something like going beyond your mind. So repentance, it usually makes us think about changing a behavior or changing an action, but metanoia is about change at a deeper level than just changing a behavior that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. John and Jesus and Paul urge us to change our whole way of knowing, to change our, our perspective, to change the way that we process reality. The kingdom of heaven has arrived, John the Baptist says, Jesus says, and it's nothing like what we thought it would be. It's, it's not what we expected. Um, it's not like anything we've ever understood before with our minds, and so, in a sense, this is what God had been preparing his people to do throughout the entire Old Testament all along, calling people to trust him, to step out beyond their own understanding, uh, and follow, like Abraham, right, when he left everything uh, behind to follow God, when he trusted in this impossible promise of having a child at his age. Uh, it, it's a changing of perspective. It's a, if you say so, God, um, I guess I'm in, Right? Repentance, it seems like something we can accomplish with our own willpower. Like when I decide to change a bad behavior and turn around, I can just grit my teeth and make the change. Metanoia calls for a deep conversion that, that will change the way that I think about the world. It will change my attitude toward God. It's a conversion that, that obviously it will impact my actions. It will impact the way I behave. But it's an inside-out change. It's not an outside-in change. It doesn't start with changing behavior. It starts inside. Um, as, I turn, as we turn to God, as we, as we let God work on us, metanoia is something that he does in us that works a change from the inside out. So this call to metanoia, it's a direct challenge to a culture like the one we live in, a culture that has become obsessed with the need to not only accept any idea or any action that, that anyone likes, but also to affirm those actions, to celebrate those actions, to endorse them. The way to prepare for the coming Messiah is to allow God to challenge everything you think, everything you know, everything you believe. It's not an invitation to come as you are. And we don't like that. And here's the thing. As far as sinful behavior is concerned, yes, Jesus calls us to come to him just as we are. Jesus doesn't expect us all, you know, he doesn't expect you to clean up your act, change everything that you've been doing wrong, get everything right, and then you can come. That's really clear throughout the Bible. Jesus is constantly calling sinners to come to him just the way that they are, but not to stay that way is the thing, right? Like, he's calling us constantly to come to him just the way that we are, but not so that he can be like, yeah, whatever you want is great. Like, just come to me as you are 
and we'll work on this, right? And, and I will work change inside of you. This metanoia can happen when we come to him just as we are. And so come as you are, yes, but also no. Like that, Jesus didn't wander around saying, come as you are, come as you are, come as you are. He says, repent, right? For the kingdom of God is near. Repent is not come as you are. Repent is allow God to change everything about how I think and see the world around me. That, that's different, right? That's a different message than, than just come as you are, any old thing is fine. Um, Jesus does expect change, but fortunately, he's the one who works the change, um, he, he doesn't expect me to do all this heavy lifting and work this change uh, all by myself, right? When this, we hear Peter say this, right? When Peter and the apostles received the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, Peter went out to preach uh, to the people who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, and as they listened to, to Peter preach in the power of the Holy Spirit, the people were convicted. And, and they said, what should we do? The people heard Peter and they're like, oh, I feel like I need to do something. And Peter says in Acts uh, 4.38, no, sorry, Acts 2, uh, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repentance is more than just stop doing bad stuff and try to do better. It's metanoia. Metanoia means conversion. It means transformation. It means submission uh, to view the world God's way instead of your way. And I think it's really interesting, Luke's version of this story has a section that the other, the other three don't. Um, after John the Baptist tells them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, uh, the people who have come out to be baptized by John ask him uh, what they should do. Uh, just like the crowd asked Peter in, in Acts chapter 2. And John unpacks what the fruit of repentance looks like. Um, just a little bit. It's not, it's not you know every possible scenario, but he unpacks it a little bit. And, and his examples aren't meant to give us instructions on how we repent. They're, they're the kind of fruit that grows out of our repentance. I know that feels semantic, but the order is important. We don't, we don't repent by do, making these changes. These changes are made when we repent and we start seeing things God's way. Um, and so starting in Luke 3, uh, verse 11, uh, John the Baptist answers the people, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? What should we do? Uh, specifically, right? And he says, don't collect any more than you're required to. This, and then some soldiers asked him, and, and what about us? What should we do? And he replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So the point is, once we turn to God, our lives should look different. We should be generous to those who are in need. We should have integrity in our jobs and in the way that we treat other people. We shouldn't abuse positions of power in order to get more for ourselves. When we submit our minds uh, to God and when, when we let him forgive us, we let him change us, it, it should lead us to a different lifestyle. It should lead us to different types of actions in response to God's grace. Because a transformed life on the inside transforms how we relate to other people on the outside. True repentance grows fruit. That's all that means. When, when John is saying produce fruit in keeping with repentance, that's all he's saying. He's saying, he's saying repent and then you will produce fruit. 
He's, it's not a command of produce fruit and that way maybe you can like grasp repentance somehow. It's repent, let God work change from the inside out and then you'll start producing these fruits. You'll start changing these things um, naturally, really. And there's two kinds of people that came out to, to John the Baptist out in the desert, out to see him. Um, there were people who confessed their sins and were baptized in the Jordan River. Um, and then there were people that were sent by the religious leadership to investigate him to kind of see what his deal was. And, and the crowds took steps toward repentance by putting their old ways behind them to get ready for the arrival of the new kingdom. But, but these religious leaders show up to question and observe, but they seem to think that they have no need for repentance. They're not there to participate, they're just there to observe. And John sees through their hypocrisy and he has some fairly harsh words for them. Uh, brood of vipers is not really a term of endearment. Uh, you don't need a language degree to know that, right? Um, John emphasizes that, that everybody must, has to personally respond to the call to repent. Your, your religious background or your political party or your ethnic heritage doesn't save you. The, the coming Messiah puts everyone on equal footing. There's no privilege in God's kingdom. Everyone's the same. We're all sinners. We all need to be saved, and we all can't do it ourselves. And Luke even takes it further, right? When he includes the story of something that happens way later in, in John the Baptist's ministry, right in, right in this story uh, of King Herod, this interaction that John has with King Herod, um, where, uh, so Herod had taken his brother-in-law's wife and married her. They, they, they were both married, but then they got married together. And it, that was against Jewish law to, you know, do that, uh, to, to marry your brother-in-law's wife. Uh, and, and so John spoke out about it, that, that because Herod wasn't Jewish, but he was, he was a ruler over a Jewish area. And so, and so John spoke out about it, that this is wrong, you shouldn't do it. And Herod didn't like that. Uh, he didn't like the accountability. And so he had, he had John thrown in prison. And, and we know uh, from, from the other gospels, eventually uh, beheaded, he had, him, he had him killed. And so we get this story, right, where, where Luke shows us that, that nobody, even King Herod, even the highest government authority, nobody uh, is above the call to repent. This is for everybody. John, John warns us against relying on our ancestry, our heritage, or, or our position, or our power, or our wealth, or anything for salvation. Um, being born in a so-called Christian nation isn't enough. Growing up in a Christian home, going to a Christian church, living a moral Christian lifestyle, it, it means nothing if we don't personally respond to the offer of forgiveness that's found by coming to Jesus in repentance. You don't just automatically, you don't, get, you don't, you don't inherit God's kingdom. You don't just get grandfathered in because your parents were believers or, or because you go to church your whole life. You, there's a personal response. There's a call to repent uh, that... that all of us have to engage, right? And so the people who are serious, the people who are serious about this call to repentance uh, and about turning to God, they come out and they're baptized by John in the Jordan River. And, and baptism was already a practice uh, for Jews at the time, so this wasn't totally new, it wasn't completely unheard of, but not like this. The, the way John was baptizing was new and this was different. 
Um, there, there were uh, ceremonial washings, quite a few actually, for purification. Uh, when, when someone came into contact with something unclean, there were uh, laws about how that they, w- they would wash in order to purify themselves and become clean again. Uh, and, and so that was, that was a baptism of sorts, right? That was, you know, baptizing your hands or the part that's unclean or sometimes your whole body uh, in water. Um, and then th- there was... It was different from that because John's baptism, John the Baptist, this is a one-time thing. This isn't, people weren't constantly coming to him over and over and over again every day, like, oh, I sinned again, I need it again. It was a one-time thing, a one-time baptism, a one-time immersion. It wasn't an ongoing practice like the ceremonial washings. So that was different. It was also a full immersion in water, which was fairly unusual uh, for a Jew to go through. Um, It was really similar to the process of a non-Jew converting to become a Jew. Um, uh, full immersion was part of the conversion process to become Jewish. Uh, and, and John's call for everyone to be baptized, that is brand new. Because up to this point, only Gentile converts uh, and those who were defiled needed to be immersed to cleanse themselves from impurity, to commit themselves to, to becoming Jewish. Um, and this baptism is, is in water for repentance to prepare for the coming Messiah and everybody, John's calling everybody, Jew, non-Jew, everybody needs this baptism in order to be ready. And it's, it, it, it's to prepare for the Messiah who's coming. And John says, the Messiah who's coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's baptism was about repenting. Jesus' baptism brings the Holy Spirit to those who have repented. And so John makes a, a distinction, not so, much, not so much to set up two different baptisms like for us today, like do you want this kind of baptism or do you want water or fire, right? He's not really setting that up for us, like we don't fire baptize. Um, <laughs> and, and what he's doing is he's setting up that, that Jesus' baptism is, is better. Just, just like the other stuff he's saying, right? The one who's coming after me is, he's the guy, like not me. I'm baptizing you in water to get ready for that. You know, when he baptizes, uh, it'll come with the Holy Spirit. You know, that's, that, that's the kind of next level baptism. And so he's, even in the baptisms, he's setting up this kind of distinction of the Messiah will be better. Um, this is to get ready. And so if John was baptizing for repentance and forgiveness and to get ready, why did Jesus ask John to baptize him? That's the part, right? That's, what's so, that's confusing. Um, and, and if you're confused by that, you're in good company because John was too, right? John was wondering the same thing. Jesus shows up and John's like, uh, shouldn't you baptize me? What's going on here? Like, I, I don't, I can't do this, you know? And so that makes it clear that John knew Jesus didn't need to repent. Jesus didn't need to be forgiven for any sins. Uh, and, and so Jesus says it, it's only, it's, it's, that it's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And I think that Jesus meant this in the context of broader history, that God's saving activity that started in the Old Testament is now being fulfilled by the, the official beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. So by getting baptized, Jesus is expressing his obedience to God's plan uh, for saving his, his people. And he's also kind of endorsing John's ministry of repentance and preparation by participating in it. Uh, Jesus participates in it, and it kind of confirms, like, yeah, I'm behind this. Uh, I, I endorse this ministry. And, and he also, I think probably my favorite thing, and, and most powerfully, 
He also identifies with his people in their need by getting into the water with us rather than shouting down from heaven at us. This is who Jesus is all the time, right? He's always just getting down in the muck with us. He's always coming to where we are. And when Jesus comes out of the water, heaven is opened, the Spirit of God came down, and the Father's voice claimed him as Messiah. And in the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, the opening of, he- of the heavens is usually a sign that God is about to speak or act in a new way. He's about to give his people a glimpse at his plan. And, yep. <laughs> and I like Mark's version of this part of the story the best because he doesn't use the word for open. When Mark says that heaven was opened, he doesn't say it was opened. He said it was torn. The heaven was torn. Because what is open can be closed, But it's hard to close what's torn. What's torn is open. And so when Jesus comes out of the water, all heaven breaks loose. Ready or not, here God comes, right? Jesus is coming in ministry. It's happening. You know, this this is now. And And then the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. It's not suggesting that Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit before. Like this is when he's getting the Spirit for the first time. Because we know through the Bible that he was conceived by the Spirit. Right? He had the Spirit before he was even born. Um, this moment is a formal anointing that launched his public ministry. And in John's Gospel, we find out that this moment is what confirmed to John the Baptist that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is, is God's chosen one. God had, had told John to look for this, the, the Holy Spirit, the one that the Spirit descends on, that's my chosen one. Uh, and so when John uh, witnesses this, that's how he knows this is, this is the Messiah. And so the appearance of the Spirit, the presence of the Son, the voice of the Father, they all come together in this one moment that all four Gospels included to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And in John's Gospel, John the Baptist testifies that the Spirit came down from heaven and remained on Jesus. See, that's new too. There were times in the Bible when God sent his spirit to anoint someone for a task. It was usually a king or a prophet, uh, someone in the Old Testament. But this is the first time that God's spirit remained. This is a permanent anointing. This is new. This is unlike anything that God uh, has done before, anything God's people have seen before. And it leads John to call Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And like a true prophet, John the Baptist assumed that the Messiah would come in judgment to clean up the sin of his people. Takes away the sin of the world, right? There's a way to read that that's kind of scary. He's the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, the clock is now ticking where sin is going to be dealt with and it's over, right? That was probably, and I don't know, how would I, how would I know what John the Baptist was thinking, but probably knowing what he would have known, what he was expecting. Now, John the Evangelist, John who wrote the gospel, had a, a more full picture by the time he wrote this, and I think that he, there's kind of a double meaning here, that Jesus is the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He is a prophet that, that is capable of bringing judgment, but he's also God's Lamb to stand in as a sacrifice once and for all to take away the sin of the world. 
I think both of those things are true. John was right to say that Jesus would take away sin through judgment, and John, the other John, was right to say that Jesus, the Lamb of God, would satisfy the judgment himself with the atoning sacrifice of himself. Jesus is the gift that God has provided to take away our sin. The Lamb of God is available to everybody. And so the, the offer that he makes to take away the sin of the world, it's not an exclusive one. Uh, we, we accuse this all the time, right, in the world it's, that, that Christianity is exclusive and it's, you know, the, how could you possibly say that there's only one way to get to God? And it's not exclusive. The offer's to everybody. Jesus is available to everybody, but he is the only one qualified to make the offer. So it, yes, he's exclusive, but what he offers is not. What he offers is available. Peter says it in Acts chapter 4, and we'll, and we'll finish with this. He says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And that's what this story is. Jesus is the one. His people have been waiting for Messiah. They've been waiting for God to send the one. And that's what this story is. Here he is. The one is here. Heaven is torn open. The spirit comes down and permanently settles on Jesus. And God says, God says, that's him. He's the one. Let's pray. God, sometimes your word is confusing. Sometimes we don't know what to make of it. Who Jesus is doesn't feel like one of those times. So I, want, I just want to thank you for clarity. I want to thank you for pointing out to us exactly who it is. Exactly who you've, who you've sent. Exactly who you want us to follow. And Father, I just pray that the call to repentance uh, that, that John the Baptist issued, that Jesus issued after him, I pray that we would take up that call to repentance. Not just to try to work harder, to change our behaviors, but to open ourselves up for you to make a lasting change uh, in the way we see the world. That we would see as you see. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, this story found in all four Gospels, it teaches us that repentance is our personal response to Jesus. Um, it starts with baptism. It continues as we bear the fruit of a life that God is changing from the inside out. And, and both Matthew and Mark include this interesting detail in, in the way they tell the story. They say that when the people came to John to repent and be baptized, they were confessing their sins. There's something about shining a light on the things that we hide in the dark that fuels our repentance. And so I want to challenge you to try that this morning. I want to challenge you just in your seat, just between you and God, I want to challenge you to try that this morning. Confessing your sins, shining a light on the stuff that you generally hide. And we're going to take communion together in a couple minutes, uh, and so it, we're not going to take a ton of time for this, but as you wait for the trays to, to pass by, as you wait to take the, the cups and hold on to them, you'll have a couple of minutes uh, to spend quietly. So, so use that time to, to come clean. Uh, come clean to God about where you've been falling short lately and, and thank him for the forgiveness that he's offering, uh, the forgiveness that's available to you through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His body given for us. His blood poured out for our sin. Amen. Well, I hope that you'll...
come back next week as we continue our Big Ten series. I'll make you a deal. On uh, Sunday, March 3rd, we're doing a, a big uh, tailgating event promoting the series. Everybody come in your favorite team's gear. Uh, we're going to have a lot of fun that day. And here's the deal. If you will root for my team, <laughs> I will wear Illinois on March 3rd. That's your deal. All right? So I need everybody in on the Lions for as long as they're still in. Let's stand up and finish off with some songs this morning.